Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Islamic Studies. Thanks again for joining us. I'm your host, Christian Peterson. I just had the pleasure of speaking with Brett Wilson about his great new book, Translating the Quran in the Age of Nationalism, Print Culture and Modern Islam in Turkey, which was published with Oxford University Press in 2014. Muslim debates regarding the translation of the Quran are very... Welcome back to New Books in Islamic Studies. Thanks again for joining us. I'm your host, Christian Peterson. I just had the pleasure of speaking with Brett Wilson about his great new book, Translating the Quran in the Age of Nationalism, Print Culture and Modern Islam in Turkey, which was published with Oxford University Press in 2014. Muslim debates regarding the translation of the Quran are very old. However, during the modern period, they became heated because local communities around the globe were rethinking their relationship to scripture in new social and political settings. In this new book, Wilson provides a rich history of how this conversation is unfolding within the late Ottoman period and Republic of Turkey. The Quran's translatability is contested from various perspectives, both old and new, but emerging print technologies, shifting political authority, and changing economies of knowledge production offer contemporary challenges that mark the demand for Turkish translations. Wilson narrates the production of vernacular interpretations and commentaries, unofficial translations, and a state-sponsored project. In many cases, translation was viewed as a tool of progress, modernization, and Turkish nationalism. For others, it led to vernacular ritual practice and and disharmony in the global Muslim community. He also investigates the role of religious authorities, lay community members, publishers, calligraphers, Protestant missionaries, Arab neighbors, and government in the creation and rejection of Turkish translations of the Quran. In our conversation, we discuss print technologies, vernacular commentaries, shipping and trade, Ottoman politics, secularism, Arab nationalism, everyday ritual worship, and arguments about the Quran's translatability. It's a really wonderful book, and Brett has done an excellent job in providing us this snapshot in the history of the Quran. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Brett Wilson. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. Brett, how are you doing? Uh, very well, thank you, Christian. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining me. This really is a wonderful book. You're uh, uh, spanning lots of interesting topics um, in terms of modernity and nationalism and uh, Islamic unity and material culture and textual analysis. So you're really doing a lot in, in, in this book, and I'm, I'm excited to talk to you about it. So thanks for, thanks for writing a wonderful book. <laughs> My pleasure. Before we get into the details, uh, the tradition here at New Books and Islamic Studies is to find out a little bit about the authors. So I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about how you got interested in Islamic studies, uh, if there were perhaps mentors that shaped either the topics you explore or your approach that you take, any kind of uh, moments that really l- locked it in for you is this is what you want to do. Sure. 
Well, I was uh, very interested in the Middle East as an undergraduate, and I happened to have a couple of friends at my university who were Turkish, uh, and these two things combined led to me studying abroad in Istanbul as a junior junior year student. Uh, so I, I studied at Boğaziçi University in Istanbul for a year. And I actually went there also with quite a lot of interest in Byzantine history. Uh, but over the course of my time there, I really became more and more interested in Turkey and the Ottoman Empire. I ended up learning Turkish while I was there. And this this kind of set the path for me um, as an undergraduate. Uh, then after graduating, I, I some one of my undergraduate advisors uh, – thought, you know, you've got this, uh, you've got this background and you've got uh, Turkish language. uh, So why don't you think about doing graduate school in Islamic studies? And uh, it's interesting because I I had very much wanted to do that, but this was at the time right after the 2001 uh, economic crisis in the U S and everyone was, was speaking very uh, badly about the prospects for a career in academia Mm. Uh, so I was. I thought really that it wasn't an option, uh, but when this advisor uh, pushed me in that direction, um, I, I went with it, and then I ended up uh, matriculating to Duke University in the Islamic Studies program there. Now, could you talk a little bit about how this particular project emerged? Because it, it did begin in your dissertation research, so perhaps what was going on while you were doing your graduate studies, and then... Um, how you might have had to rethink the dissertation in the preparation of the book itself. Hmm. Sure. Well, well, one thing that happened was that, of course, while I was working on the dissertation, uh, there were a lot of new developments in the, in the translation of the Quran. Uh, in Turkey, several new versions came out, um, a very important uh, older translation was found and published. So there was some kind of exciting things going on. Um, But also I would say I came to the topic, you know, obviously through my interest in Ottoman and Turkish history, but then again, my advisor, Bruce Lawrence played a big role in, in encouraging me to investigate the importance of translations of the Quran, uh, what they've done in Turkey, what they're, what their relevance and their role is in modern Islam more broadly. Uh, So that's how the dissertation happened. Um, I spent a good, you know, many months in the Ottoman archives uh, doing research on this uh, in order to try to get kind of different perspective on the history of the Quran as a book. Um, oftentimes, well, I, I mean, I should say much of this, much of the literature on the Quran is, is obviously about the content, which, you know, I'm also extremely interested in. Uh, but for this, uh, dissertation and then later the book, I really wanted to try to find out more about the, the history of the context of the Quran or the kind of cultural history of the Quran. And so by going to the Ottoman governmental archives, um, I was able to find a really rich array of stories, sources, uh, developments, etc., related to the Quran as a as a material object, as a book that was printed, as a book that was d- 
distributed by the government, that was sometimes protected by the government, etc. And uh, that was that was one of the things happened during the research. Um, in terms of turning the dissertation into a book, um, this took me quite a long time because the I, I really think about them a bit separately because the book is uh, more than twice as long as the dissertation. So it was really a substantial, a doubling and, and, and plus some in terms of length, in terms of uh, research, etc., and uh, that happened over the course of, of, of several years while I was working at McAllister uh, teaching. And I had a sabbatical, which I spent in Turkey, which was very helpful uh, for expanding it. And um, a lot of rethinking on my part, reframing, uh, reading sources that I had not had the chance to get to. Um, and, you know, obviously composing several new chapters as well. What I find really interesting about this book, and um, if you just read the title, you might miss it, um, hmm. especially the, the the first the first half of the title, right? Translating the Quran in the Age of na- Nationalism. You might assume that this book is looking at kind of the content and exactly how translations uh, mm-hmm. uh, occurred. Um, but what uh, I really found fascinating about this book is that you you basically looking at this as a process. And the debates that are surrounding this process, so it's the, the social activities, the social consequences of the activity of translation, um, and it's it's really great, Brett. So so thank you. Um, you begin the book though, uh, kind of setting it up that that while these debates are happening in the modern period, um, there there's been previous debates about the translatability of the Quran. Um, just to kind of give us some broader context and set this up for listeners. Um, how, how would you describe kind of the historical debates re- regarding the translation of the Quran? Sure. Well, very early um, in the history of the in the history of Islam, of course, uh, there was a there was a state that was expanding, and there were people converting or encountering um, non-Arab populations who were interested in the Quran or who Muslims wanted to teach about the Quran. And so very early on, there are these, uh, this question of the licitness of translating the Quran becomes an issue. It first crops up uh, dealing with the issue of how to say the obligatory daily prayers. Uh, so could a, a, a Persian Muslim or a new convert to Islam, say their prayers in a, in a language other than Arabic, and also could they recite the verses of the Quran which are required in the prayer in a language other than Arabic. Um, Travis Zadeh has written a fantastic book uh, in the same series as, as my book that really goes deeply into this topic. Um, I think you've read it as well, Christian. Um, and course, it, it comes to the question of, well, is the Quran miraculous language that cannot be imitated or reproduced, or is it a message uh, with, with content that does have some translatable parts which are valuable to translate? Uh, and without going too much further into it, um, I would just say that the, the vast majority of Muslim legal scholars tended to to go to the side that translation is 
perfect translation, that is, is not possible. Um, some would say that uh, translation is not licit or is impermissible, but that, you know, certain summaries or interpretive uh, reworkings of the Quran are licit. So this is kind of the, the broad issue. And of course, coming up to the modern period, uh, these issues were still very much in, uh, live, were very relevant, because in the late Ottoman Empire, for example, it was impossible to publish a book with the title Translation of the Quran. Uh, and so the very word translation still had that, that uh, kind of... Uh, prohibitive uh, element to it, even uh, even as late as the, you know, the 1920s in Turkey. Now, in, in the 19th uh, century, you, you, you kind of begin your story, and in this kind of nexus of new print technology, um, shifting political authorities, uh, different or kind of emerging modes of, of knowledge production, um, we have kind of a, a more focused debate on uh, the translatability of the Quran. Can you can you tell us some kind of the historical context that we would need to to make sense of this? Um, what's what's going on in this kind of late Ottoman period? Why does translation become uh, a, a, a topic uh, of interest again? Um, how does print technology kind of fit into this? Certainly. Well, the issue of print technology is crucial in that, first of all, there's a, there's a huge, um, before the issue of translation comes up, the issue of printing the Quran is a major focus of concern over the course of the middle of the 19th century. Um, and that's because in various countries uh, or empires around the Ottoman Empire, there are Muslims and non-Muslims printing copies of of the Quran in Arabic, obviously, original copies. And these books are becoming mass-produced, they're becoming much cheaper, etc. But in the Ottoman Empire, they're still illegal up through uh, the 1870s. So uh, there have this argument in the book that it becomes more and more normal to expect to own a copy of the Quran. Um, And combined with that, uh, there is the issue that the the copies of the Quran that eventually the Ottoman state agrees to produce and print have an official stamp of approval and usually have also the name of the sultan in the back. So I also argue that these printed Qurans that emerge in the 19th century really link a kind of relationship with the state, with Muslim identity. And I contend that that is a, a that lays the foundation for thinking about a national Quran, a Quran that is uh, related to uh, national identity in addition to these printed texts. Um, additionally, we have to think about things like education. And the 19th century was the period in which, for the first time, there was a broader effort to institute state schools across the Ottoman Empire. So rising literacy rates, increasing number of people who expect to own a Quran. And of course, uh, we began to see the efforts of Christian missionaries in the Middle East in the 19th century, 
And one of their major activities is producing translations of the Bible, uh, translations for vernacular consumption among the populations of the Middle East. So there is, so to speak, a model of what a vernacular printed text is and, and what it can do and the power it can have. In addition to all these things, there were also models from Europe, and much of the Ottoman intelligentsia in the 19th century was reading French, and many of them were reading French translations of the Quran as well, because at that point there wasn't a similar text in Turkish to read, and so many of them thought that these these affordable, accessible French language texts were quite a good model for what could be the case uh, in Turkish or in the Ottoman Empire. For the purposes of educating people about the Quran, for the purposes of promoting more, so to speak, rational ways of engaging the Quran, instead of just reciting it, which was the traditional education. I think I got to most of your points there. Yeah. That's a broad subject. I can say more if you like. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so, yeah, maybe we can zoom in here a little, because uh, there was some hesitation to have printed Quran. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about this. So what, what type of Qurans did people have? How were they produced before printing? Um, how, what was the kind of response by Muslims to printed Islamic materials more broadly in the Quran specifically? Um, and, and when did the Ottomans or, and why did they start uh, allowing for printed Qurans to happen? Certainly. Well, Books in general were quite expensive uh, before printing really took hold. So we're talking about scribes reproducing uh, these texts. And even a, a rather plain, mediocre copy of the Quran done by some not-so-special calligrapher would have been quite an expensive object for most people in the Ottoman Empire. There are some really interesting studies done about uh, the estates of people, what they owned when they died. And we see that, for example, for members of the ulama, many of them had few possessions, um, and usually they owned one or two, maybe a few more books, and the Quran was usually among them. But, uh, we, you know, for large people, usually these that wasn't the case. Usually they didn't own any books. Um, they were out of reach. And I've, I've tried to show, to estimate how valuable uh, copies of the Quran actually were in the book. It's, it's an imprecise science, but uh, roughly um, the middle of the 19th century would have been equal to, to about the price of a cow for a cheaper copy and about the price of two cows for a more expensive copy. So if you think about how many... Uh, books you've ever bought that, that took, you know, for example, 10 days wages or 20 days wages, um, it's probably very few, uh, probably zero. And this was the same case then. So books were simply unaffordable. So what happened was when Russian Muslims, uh, when publishers in India, when publishers in Iran began to print copies of the Quran starting in the 1820s, 1830s, um, for the Russian Empire, even in the late 18th century, uh, these books were circulating. People were bringing them to sell in the Ottoman domains because they were cheaper. Uh, they were more accessible. They were a lot of times they were also easier to read. They were clearer. 
And so there becomes market pressure actually on the Ottoman Empire to uh, to accept printing because because they were illegal. They basically confiscated these imported copies of the Quran for several decades. Um, we have hundreds of documents about border officials seizing copies of the Quran from uh, booksellers, from refugees, from smugglers, etc. And they would confiscate these books, send them to Istanbul, uh, store them in a depot somewhere. Um, and what happened was the state realized that this was unsuccessful uh, because they couldn't really stop the flow of these books. And moreover, they began to realize that there was a real need uh, for the Ottomans to, so to speak, make their presence felt uh, in the domain of producing printed Qurans. Um, so after, after several decades of confiscating the books, of trying to keep them out, um, the state decided to produce them and essentially to officially approve certain versions and put the sultan's name in the back. And these were certified official acceptable Qurans, uh, which also were then sent abroad to other places uh, in order to, to bolster the sultan's claim to be the caliph of all Muslims, uh, to promote kind of pan-Islamic sympathies among Muslims in various parts of the globe, um, and the Ottoman archives have very interesting documents about sending copies of the Quran to uh, Indonesia, to South Africa, to China, to Afghanistan, um, virtually everywhere where Muslims were living. So it was part of also a kind of state legitimacy campaign to, to actually realize the claim of being uh, the caliph at that time. Now, alongside the proliferation of printing and uh, specifically these printed Qurans, we have uh, new vernacular interpretations of the Quran happening. Um, what, what types of commentaries do we find? Uh, what types of audiences are these intended for? You kind of have alluded to different types of audiences and kind of a new craving for uh, Quranic materials. Um, what's, what's going on here with these commentaries? Sure, right. So before we see outright translations, we have this this period of what I would call simplified commentaries or easy-to-read commentaries. And these were, for the most part, translations of commentaries from Arabic and Persian. Um, and the consumers were it's, – it's hard to tell a lot of times the reception of these books, but what we do know is that – for example, for a very popular early translation, Turkish translation of a Persian commentary, uh, the primary recipients were madrasa students, so members of the ulama who were studying in schools who obviously needed such books, uh, had a high demand for these books. Uh, and also we can imagine these new graduates of various state schools and institutions uh, using these books. So there are two really prominent ones that come out uh, in one in the 1840s, one in the 1860s, which are cited very frequently right up through um, the mid 20th century. So they really do uh, kind of take hold as accessible sources in Turkish language to 
for example, look up the meaning of a particular Quranic verse uh, to use in your tafsir class um, and to use for study and instruction in various types of institutions. Now, could you tell us a little bit about the debates that are happening at this time? Because this is, this is really when we have these vernacular interpretations and the printing of uh, basically mushafs being reproduced. Um, we have kind of a new invigoration around these debates of should we be translating the Quran? Um, so perhaps you could tell us what, what are the hesitations at this moment? There are some theological, but there are also uh, kind of nationalist questions that are happening, um, issues of colonial encroachment that are happening, um, uh, kind of rise of, 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 an Arab unity happening here and uh, this kind of focus on Arabic as a unifying feature among Muslims. Uh, what, what's going on with the debates in relation to the translation of the Quran during this particular moment? Sure. Well, what's striking is you really have a, a change in thinking about the whole issue at this period, which, which was what really fascinated me. How did this change? What was the, what tipped the scales in favor of change? And what you basically have is one camp uh, which holds the traditional line that translations are forbidden or translations are imperfect and therefore they're, they're not desirable uh, because, because of very, uh, very linguistic and theological reasons. Uh, the, the Arabic in the Quran is miraculous um, it's the direct speech of God. Uh, it can't be translated, or if you do translate it, then it, it loses all of its its splendor, so to speak. Um, but increasingly, we start to see voices who argue that it's absolutely indispensable to understand the Quran, and they're really pushing a kind of rational comprehension of the Quran versus um, the traditional line. And that that is pushed in large part, I think, um, by the view in the period that the, the Muslim world was in decline and that there needed to be some kind of reinvigoration of connection with the Quran, with the sacred sources of Islam. And so all this is going on. On the side of that, the, the issue of producing printed copies of the Quran comes down to a very similar question. Um, and that is, by printing the Quran, are you putting the Quran through an impure ritual process um, on machines that were invented by Europeans? And are you subjecting the Quran to some kind of mechanical violence? This was one of the major issues of concern for people who opposed printing the Quran. They also opposed the idea that machines and printing houses would basically put scribes out of business, that they would make a lot of these traditional tradesmen unemployed. So there's a, there's a combination of a ritual purity argument and also an economic argument connected to it. Uh, so all this is happening at the same time. Um, but over the course of the century, really what we see is that arguments for the utility of translation in terms of teaching Islam, um, helping people to better understand their religion, 
And in a later phase of spreading Islam um, around the world and also to, to the West, the arguments for translation really began to win the day um, toward the turn of the century, toward the early 20th century. Now, we have other actors in these debates, and specifically we have uh, people um, like Muhammad Abdu, Rashid Rida, who are um, taking, taking a stance, uh, kind, of in a, kind of politicizing translation as a practice. Um, how do they fit into this debate? Uh, right, these debates become international in ways. So, oh, precisely. So, translations in Turkey and um, and also the promoters of translations in Turkey really alert Rashid Rida to this current of thought, which is arguing for better understanding of the Quran through translation. Now, despite the fact that Rida was a reformist and is often thought about as a kind of uh, progressive reformer in some circles. Um, he be- he was firmly opposed to translating the Quran, and he used, um, on one hand, very traditional arguments about the language, but he also used, as you as you rightly say, a kind of politicization of the topic. Um, he argues that translations of the Quran will divide the Ummah linguistically, and basically create national Islams which don't communicate with each other um, and which are separated. So ultimately, these translations will weaken Islam. But he also says that the translations are based on the models of missionaries and that they are, in a sense, tools of colonial regimes. So he paints them with with a very dark brush, as being part of a broader effort to divide and conquer the Muslim world. And he wrote quite a, he wrote quite a lengthy fatwa on this in 1908. Um, most of his interactions, most of his, I should say, his interventions on the topic were in relation to what um, Turkish-speaking Muslims were doing. Um, and this isn't just Turkish-speaking Muslims in Istanbul or in the or in Anatolia, but also those who were in Cairo, and many different Turkish intellectuals were in Cairo in the period. And of course, there was a Ottoman Turkish elite in Cairo, which which remained there for quite a long time. Uh, so he was very adamant and and pretty consistent actually in his opposition to translations. He was a very firm promoter of the revitalization of Arabic as a language for the entire Ummah. And he wrote several very interesting essays about the need to teach Arabic to all Muslims. Um, essays which actually were not very well received by most Muslim scholars in the period. Um, so Ruta is very, very central in the topic. Um, and he then plays a big role also in kind of establishing positions for understanding translations in the modern period for the opposing camp. Now, at the same time, um, on the ground in Turkey, we have kind of shifting social and political circumstances happening. And emerging within this, we have uh, – I'm going to try my, my best at Tur- Turkish here uh, – Bigiev. Is that mm-hmm. correct? So we have this figure, uh, Bigiev, who basically is the first person to really uh, complete a translation of the Quran. Um, 
which we ha- we don't ha- have. So this is a really interesting story. So um, can, can you tell us about who this figure is, what he was doing, and then kind of the uh, probably more importantly the the broader response to his work and ha- how he positioned the role of translation. Sure. Um, so Bikhiev is from the same generation as Rashid Ridda. Um, he's a Muslim modernist thinker from Kazan, Russia. Um, but he was deeply involved in the, the pan-Turkism currents that were circulating at the time. This movement which envisioned a broader, speaking, broader Turkic uh, cultural configuration, cultural linguistic configuration spanning from Eastern Europe to, to, to Central Asia. Um, and he thought that he was very much in the camp in support of Quran translation uh, and worked on one for quite a while. Um, but of course, as you mentioned, we don't have it. But what he did do was he wrote a lengthy manifesto in support of translations. And this manifesto, uh, published around 1908, uh, was quite important and quite influential in Istanbul also. And many of his fans and supporters um, in Turkish-speaking circles, in, in the Ottoman Empire, and also in Russia, really heralded his efforts to be kind of uh, Martin Luther of Islam. Of course, this, this moniker is used too much, um, but in, in the sense that he was actually translating a vernacular Turkish or Turkic Quran uh, for his nation, so to speak. Uh, he became a hero and his, his efforts were trumpeted. Of course, he had many detractors as well. Um, the, the issue of translating the Quran was divisive um, right into the Turkish Republic period. It wasn't that there was ever a, a broad, dominant group that everyone agreed there should be a translation. There were always detractors, and translations faced quite a bit of opposition right up until the foundation of the Turkish Republic. So Bikiev, um, he's important for laying down a theoretical foundation and argument for, for doing translations. And he basically says, look, if we don't understand the Quran, we're not being good Muslims, and we're remaining in a state of ignorance and backwardness, which has put the Muslim world in a terrible position uh, in the first place. So he basically makes the, the argument utility is quite important. And he also argues that people who say that the Quran can't be translated are basically saying that the Quran has no meaning, i.e., if there's not a meaning that can be communicated in another language, then what are you saying? You're really mystifying the Quran as a text that doesn't have very concrete um, ethical statements, uh, messages to humanity, so to speak. So uh, this is this is the gist of what Bigiev argues. Um, he also makes an, he makes an interesting variation on traditional arguments for the inimitability of the Quran, and that is, he says that. The Quran is inimitable because God protects it, in a sense. He basically extends the logic of the protection of the Quran to translations that, you know, regardless of bad interpretations that people make or mistakes that might be made, the meanings of the Quran are preserved um, in the Arabic text, so they'll always be there to be retrieved. 
So we shouldn't fear that a translation will somehow lead to a massive misunderstanding of the text or a loss of some kind of essential meaning, uh, because these have been meditated upon, recorded by the Muslim community for, for centuries. So there's nothing to fear in translating the Quran. Now, in the, the kind of new intellectual environment of the Turkish Republic, we have uh, several translations happening uh, almost immediately after. Can you, can you talk a little bit about what are the changes during this time and, and what some of these translations look like? What are the responses to them? Uh, they're not very well received overall. So what's going on here? Sure. Well, during the, the years preceding the foundation of the Republic, which was 1923, there had been several attempts to publish a translation of the Quran. But as I mentioned before, it was illegal. You couldn't do it. There was, there was a, the Sheikh al-Islam, the head of the Ottoman religious establishment, uh, prohibited doing that. And so once the Republic is founded, um, that office loses all of its power, and basically the market is opened up for publishing such texts. Now, a broad swath of the devout intelligentsia and the nationalist intelligentsia was very much in support of translation. Um, but what we saw happen in 1924 was that Several translations are published, perhaps hastily so, um, and by a couple of authors who weren't respected as Muslim scholars or even as intellectuals, so to speak. Uh, so what happens is these translations are published following quite a bit of advertisements and commercial fanfare during the very first Ramadan of the Turkish Republic. And because they were done perhaps hastily, because they were done by people who weren't respected by the intelligentsia, they received a really brutal reception in the press. And it's a really interesting period to look at because we see basically newspapers and journals publishing extensive criticisms of actual translations of verses and phrases and words um, in these new books. And overall, they were very hostile and they thought that not only are they uh, unqualified to do such translations, not only do they make a lot of mistakes, but also the level of Turkish language is not good. Uh, they're unpoetic. Uh, they even cause Muslims to uh, misunderstand their religion in some sense. So there was one particular verse uh, which really uh, a lot of these debates centered around. And I, I mentioned it briefly it, actually, I, I discuss it much longer in an article that's coming out, but it's, a, it's a, a verse about fasting during Ramadan, and one of the translations translates it in such a way that it could be interpreted that fasting during Ramadan is optional. And several people did write um, responses to this in the media, which said, you know, look, now we have an accurate translation which says that Fasting during Ramadan is optional. And this, of course, caused a big stir. The head of the Dianet, the religious establishment, issued a proclamation that this was incorrect, that um, it was a preposterous translation, that it can be considered right, and that you know Muslims definitely have to fast during Ramadan. 
So this is a kind of example of the debates that were happening. It was a fluid um, public discussion about these verses, which um, you know is is perhaps unique, at least in the Turkish context, to see uh, the really raising of religious debates to this public forum where Quranic interpretation is being fought out in the domain of newspapers, journals, and other types of, of printed materials. Yeah, and Brett, you do a really good job of outlining these various voices and putting them in conversation. And, and yeah, it's really one of the, the highlights of the book, uh, how these debates unfold. So extending from this, we then have um, the Turkish state basically responding by uh, – developing their own sponsored translation project. Can you, can you tell us about how this project emerged, who was involved? Certainly. Well, these, these first translations, which angered a lot of people, caused various voices to demand that the government sponsor an accurate, um, eloquent translation, which could be used as a reference, which in some people's mind, could be even perhaps an official translation from the Turkish nation. So what happened was the parliament basically set aside funds to sponsor two different people to work on a translation and a commentary, both in Turkish. And it's very clear from the voices at the beginning that what was envisioned was a kind of Martin Luther's German Bible of, Tur- of the Turkish Quran, a, an accessible, readable, yet poetic and inspiring uh, translation which successfully unites um, the new Turkish identity and language with the central sacred text of Islam. So, to say the least, <laughs> expectations were very, very high. Um, and those who sponsored this official translation were very happy with the choice of the translator because the translator was one of the leading uh, devout intellectuals in the late Ottoman Empire, Mehmet Akif Ersoy. He was also a poet. He wrote the Turkish national anthem. He was extremely competent in Arabic. He was the main translator of uh, Muhammad Abdu into Turkish. And so people were very excited that he was going to do the translation. He was seen as the ideal person to do it. Now, what's interesting is that, of course, like many others, he had reservations about a translation and he had reservations about what the translation might be used for in what was a kind of revolutionary cultural context in the early years of the Turkish Republic. So efforts to uh, perhaps to do Islamic rituals in Turkish rather than in Arabic efforts to perhaps replace the reading of Arabic, the Arabic Quran in mosques and in various types of schools with Turkish translations. So there were, there were certain reservations and fears that he had. And basically his story of translating the text became a long drawn out saga uh, over many years. And he went to Egypt and lived most of the rest of his life in, in Cairo where he worked on the translation Eventually, he decided that he, his translation was not ready, um, and many speculate that he was scared 
to give the translation to the government because he feared they would use it for some kind of radical religious reform. And so ultimately, he does not submit the translation after working on it for several years. Um, what then happens is the other scholar who was hired to write the Turkish tefsir um, takes on the project. And this is a gentleman called El Malala Hamdi Yazir, very hard name to say, uh, who, was, who was a very respected uh, member of the late Ottoman ulama, a very high-ranking member. And so he was also very well uh, received by the devout intelligentsia as a, a person to do the project. Now, what's also, of course, the, the interesting case with him is that he, too, uh, is very opposed to any kind of radical religious reform. And he's, he has deep reservations about using the word translation for his text. And in fact, he won't use that word. He uses the word uh, me'al in Turkish, which is something like a summary or a, or a re-rendering uh, of the Quran. And he, he writes in the introduction to the work, a kind of manifesto against translations. And uh, uh, it's a very curious way uh, uh, that this project went because it basically showed that despite the fact that it was a single party regime, which had a lot of power that, they really couldn't coerce the religious scholars into producing the kind of translation that they wanted. And they couldn't get them to reproduce the kind of discourse about nationalization that they wanted. So the developed intelligentsia successfully uh, participated in this project, but successfully uh, produced something other than was desired. And what they, what, what El Malala produced was an erudite uh, commentary on the Quran with translations included. And it became a very important text for the study of tafsir and the Quran in modern Turkey. It's not a text, though, that someone would, would pick up and read, um, you know, just to see the meaning of the verses or, as you might, with a translation which doesn't have a massive commentary attached to it. It's, it's, a, it's a multi-volume work. Uh, not something uh, that you'd read uh, in your leisure time, so to speak. So ultimately, the, the attempt to create an official Turkish national translation failed. And this, in a sense, caused some people to be you know, unsatisfied with it. Um, it caused other people to be very happy that a tradition of Turkish tefsir had really um, been given a very good start in the modern period with this work, and it's still seen as very important. What's interesting is that uh, there's a kind of reputation of al tra translation in Turkey as being the best translation, um, despite the fact that very few people have read the original language because it's quite Ottomanized language, and virtually all the versions now have simplified the language into contemporary Turkish. Now, people didn't really want to give up on Akif's translation. Can, can you tell us a little bit about the, a, the afterlife of, of his work? Sure. Um, so uh, there, was, there was the question of whether or not Akif had um, simply stored away his translation somewhere or had actually destroyed it. Now, apparently, 
he gave orders to his friend with whom he left the translation that if he failed to return from a trip, that he should destroy the translation. Akif went to Istanbul for medical treatment, uh, leaving them in his possession, and Akif never returned. He died in Istanbul. So it was assumed that he had, that his friend had destroyed the copies, and several people went to see him in Cairo and ask him, you know, did you actually destroy the translation? And, and for each visitor, he always said, yes, I destroyed the translation. Then there was a memoir that was published in the 90s, um, which said that the, writer, the author had actually been there and witnessed the burning of the manuscripts that Akif had worked on. And for a time, this was kind of assumed to be the, the final word on what happened. The, the manuscripts were burned. But uh, the, you know, the, the expectation, the hope for this translation became something like a, like a holy grail uh, for many people in Turkey, which they didn't want to give up hope on. And eventually they were proven right. They were proven that one copy um, of the text, only of a portion, not the entire text, had been preserved. And this came to light in 2013. And the, this portion was published. And so the this long saga, right, of almost right, 80 years, 80 some odd years, finally came to came to closure that the book was published and now it's being uh, examined and studied and read and debated uh, by a variety of people in Turkey. Um, so it's a long drawn out story, uh, but eventually Akif's translation does see the light of day, at least in part. So the, the second half of the 20th century, um, we see the proliferation of various translations um, but in very different kind of social contexts. Um, how, how would you say these Turkish translations have moved forward? Um, how do they relate to these, these earlier translations, to some of these debates that are happening during the period we've been talking about? What, what do you see happening? You kind of wrap up the book talking about these mm-hmm. newer developments. Sure. Well, basically, um, by, by the second half of the 20th century, by the 1950s, there, there had emerged, there had developed a culture of translating the Quran. And the taboo was essentially dead. Uh, that is, people might still refuse to call their book a translation, but it's very clear that that's what a variety of authors from different schools of thought, from different ideologies, from different religious groups, they were producing translations. And uh, what we start to see is a real um, sectarianization of the translations. Different groups compose translations for like-minded readers. Now, these might be members of Islamic movements. These might be uh, members of a certain political orientation these might be uh, various Sufi groups who have their own translations. So the number and the variety of them multiplies exponentially. Um, and so we can, you can find every different register of Turkish language from 
extremely Ottomanized classical versions to uh, versions which try to avoid using any uh, Arabic roots or Persian root words that are so-called pure Turkish language. Uh, and, you know, we see things like newspapers giving away translations of the Quran for subscribing to their newspaper. Uh, we see Turkish uh, translations which are published with um, Arabic facsimiles of famous uh, calligraphic versions of the Quran published in the middle. Um, so it's really quite a variety and quite a, a, liber a liberal sphere of composition and production now for translation. So essentially all the taboos uh, that surrounded printing and composing these books have completely gone by the wayside. And we now see a you know, a constantly changing dynamic book market for translations. There are apparently about 800 to 900,000 copies of translations sold in Turkey each year um, over the last five to 10 years. Um, we also have the Diyanet, the official religious establishment of the country, producing its own version, sponsoring its own version. So there's the official line, there are versions from various groups, movements, political political orientations, etc. So it really has become a kind of consumer market of choosing a translation which suits your, uh, your worldview or your cultural preferences. Um, and that's, the, that's what we deal with now. And we see each year several new translations coming out. Um, also, uh, groups like religious minorities like the Alevi, uh, Bektashi, etc. movements, have produced a number of their own translations. So I think it also reflects the fact that nowadays, in order to speak authoritatively about Islam in Turkey and also in the rest of the world, you've got to make references to the Quran. You have to have arguments based in the Quran uh, to prove the legitimacy of your viewpoints to be authoritative. So that's what we see has happened in Turkey too. Different groups which might have you know, never engaged much at all in the interpretation of the Quran or tafsir, are now widely embarking upon translation projects. Obviously, there's a lot we were not able to kind of dive into. Thanks for uh, spending some time with us. B before we let you go, uh, we'd love to hear about some of the projects you're working on now or things that you have that will be uh, published soon. Sure. I'm thinking now a lot about the, the abolishment of the Sufi orders in, Tur in Turkey in the early 20th century, and more broadly, uh, the decline of the power of Sufi orders uh, globally. So I'm working on a project about that right now, and I'm spending some time in the archives uh, in Ankara and Istanbul thinking about how we re-envision Sufism in the modern era when Sufi lodges are illegal or, or at least uh, in, a, in a different state of robustness than they had been in previous decades. Great. Sounds wonderful. Well, thanks for your time, Brett, and uh, we look forward to perhaps talking to you about that project too. All right, Christian. Thanks a lot. I enjoyed it. Thanks, as always, for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. 
That was my conversation with Brett Wilson about translating the Quran in an age of nationalism, print culture and modern Islam in Turkey, published with Oxford University Press in 2014. Thanks again.